0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child... Joanna and I are taking this week off to prepare for a three-part series on free speech, censorship,
1: and so-called cancel culture that will begin next Tuesday. We're featuring instead an episode of The Weeds, another Vox Media podcast network show that isn't afraid to dig into the details on the policy that shapes our lives. Hosts Dara Lind and Dylan Matthews often explore the roots of our current political issues from healthcare to immigration to housing.
0: This installment originally aired in January, and in it, host and senior Vox correspondent Dylan Matthews talks with historian John Barry, who wrote an authoritative account of the 1918 flu pandemic, The Great Influenza,
1: the story of the deadliest pandemic. We hope you'll learn something new about citizenship, public health, and resilience from the fabulous team over at The Weeds definitely timely. We'll, we'll see, see you, you next week.
2: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm very excited for today's episode, which takes a break from our current pandemic to tell you the story of the beginning and end of another so before COVID, the biggest disease outbreak in modern memory was the 1918-1919 flu outbreak, dubbed the Spanish flu in the press somewhat erroneously, which we'll, we'll get into. Uh, the disease's origins are still disputed, but it wound up killing millions of people around the world, spreading rapidly among troops fighting World War I and forcing civilians into lockdowns, quarantines and other measures that feel disturbingly familiar at this point. <laughs> I started reading about the 1918 flu in March 2020, and and at the time, the parallels to COVID felt sort of minor. The world was such a different place 100 years ago. Medical knowledge was so much more limited. But COVID has since then proved that a mass casualty event like the 1918 flu could happen again, and the parallels feel spookier than ever. That's why I'm glad to bring on John M. Berry, who is a distinguished scholar at Tulane, a historian and author of 2004's The Great Influenza, the epic story of the greatest plague in history. The book was a bestseller then, and it was a bestseller in 2020, as we all sort of struggled to make sense of our new reality. And I wanted to have John on to tell us the story of the flu, to get a sense of what we can learn from that experience and see what it could mean for us as we grope for a way out of COVID. So, John, thank you so much for being here.
3: Uh, sure, thanks. Uh, I can't really say it's a pleasure. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's an occasion.
3: <laughs> uh, but yeah, happy to be here.
2: So let's start with the basics, just for listeners who might not have much historical background. Tell me the story of how the flu started. What, what do we know at this point about its origins and, and what seems to have led to it?
3: Well, the natural reservoir for all influenza viruses is actually birds. But obviously they can infect animals. Sometime prior to February 1918, a virus jumped species from animals to humans. It may have come directly from birds. It may have passed through another mammal. The influenza virus has eight segments that carry genetic information. Seven of the 1918 virus came directly from birds. The eighth, again, may or may not have passed through another mammal. It came in waves variants emerged. The main point is it killed tens of millions, probably the best estimate, first voiced by a Nobel laureate, McFarlane Burnett, and pretty much confirmed by it more recently by most epidemiological studies, it's killed at least 50 million people, possibly 100 million people. And that was in a world with a much smaller population, uh, if you adjust for population, it'd be the equivalent of 225 to 450 million people today. So thank God, as bad as COVID is, we're not facing that.
2: I had one one sort of small terminological question. I've, I've often heard this referred to as the Spanish flu, and then pushback that that's that's a misnomer. What's the story there? And and sort of was your preferred term for for talking about it?
3: Well, I mean, it is known as the Spanish flu, but it did not start in Spain. There are several theories as to where it did begin, but we do know it didn't start in Spain. It picked up the name because Spain was not at war. And in the uh, spring, when the first wave struck, the Spanish press wrote about it. All the warring countries controlled their press, didn't want any bad news in there. And because the Spanish media was writing about it and, and other it, anyway, it became known as the Spanish flu.
2: So at this point in time, 1918, we didn't have modern antibiotics, let alone modern antivirals. What did we have? Uh, what kind of countermeasures existed to
3: handle a pandemic like this? Well, there really wasn't much except supportive care. And even oxygen was not widely used in 1918. There were maybe some very advanced areas where it was used, uh, but it's certainly not generally. So about the only tool that they did have was what came to be known in the pandemic planning process, response planning, as non-pharmaceutical interventions. What do you do when you don't have any drugs? And those, of course, were pretty much the same things that were applied uh, this time around. Closing orders, banning public meetings, and in some cases masks, things like that. And that was about it. And what do we know about the
2: effectiveness of measures like that against the flu? Um, did they, they seem to be as effective, more effective as, as in COVID? And, and sort of how long were those in place for? It's
3: interesting. And there was a pandemic in 1957, an influenza pandemic. It, it killed probably a million and a half people worldwide. And as that was reaching the United States, state public health officers met and decided not to try to use any NPIs like school closings. Hmm. Because they didn't think it would do any good, but actually, by studying 1918 and comparing cities that did and did not use various things, you know, there's pretty good evidence that those NPIs did have impact uh, and did cut down morbidity and mortality. So, in the Bush administration, which got very, very serious about uh, responding to a pandemic, and uh, I participated in the early conceptualizing of the response, they decided to go with NPIs. Actually, I think they've been much more effective this time around than they were in 1918. And countries that have been pretty rigorous in applying them found better success, I think, than any of the advocates of NPIs ever imagined would be possible. The real problem, of course, is sustaining them. You know, and obviously everywhere in the world, people are pretty tired of it.
2: What were the the politics around MPI restrictions, masking, uh, lockdowns, quarantine? What were the politics like in 1918, 1919? Uh, Were were there sort of similar to now big, like, open everything up movements, big movements against masks? Um, Walk me through sort of the societal response to, to these.
3: Oh, it was very different for a lot of reasons. First, there was no partisan politics whatsoever. We were at war. And. There was more effort made in 1918, and actually, of course, we entered the war in 1917, to create what one person in the Wilson administration called one white-hot mass of patriotism. And nobody was going to stand in front of that surge of patriotism. So there was no partisanship. Also, the disease was much, much more lethal than COVID, and it hit, instead of Killing the elderly, well over 90%, probably over 95% of the excess mortality was people under 65 years old. The most vulnerable were actually children under the age of 10. Then there was another peak of mortality at age 28, and and people could die very, very rapidly uh, in less than 24 hours after the first symptoms. So there was much more willingness, in fact, essentially total willingness uh, to accept these measures. Because you see your neighbor die sometimes with horrific symptoms in a day or two or three days, and you're going to pay attention to these things. There was a lot of attention in the media in the past year to some uh, resistance to masking ordinances uh, that I think that was vastly overblown. What happened was in, in San Francisco in particular, they had instituted a masking ordinance and other restrictions. The pandemic waned, they lifted them, people basically felt suddenly free, the pandemic came back, they reimposed the masking ordinance, then you got some resistance. But the first time around, there was essentially zero, not only in San Francisco, but pretty much in any city where where these things were done. The only significant pushback came probably either from people with very direct self-interest like saloon owners, and there were a lot of cities that were, were run by political machines. You know, Tammany Hall had just come back into power in New York City. They, they defeated the reformers that had pushed them out. Philadelphia had an extraordinarily corrupt political machine. And there were others elsewhere in the country. So saloon owners and, and theater owners and so forth. Other than that, maybe churches in a lot of cities where the church where services were banned, church leaders would say that God would never allow someone to possibly get sick who attended a church service. But there was, I think, very wide acceptance. In fact, in in some cities, you had patrols, vigilante patrols, enforcing various restrictions to make sure that everyone complied. Quite the reverse. Of what we're having today instead of having people going with guns to the michigan state Capitol and say liberate michigan you had people you know vigilante groups as i say walking the streets making sure that people complied
2: well and the the age differential seems incredibly important also for for the politics around schools what was sort of the response to the schooling system were, were there just sort of mass closures and people who who weren't uh well, most cities
3: closed schools. Yeah. One of the biggest differences between 1918 and today, and it's really quite important, is the duration. Influenza just moves much more rapidly than than SARS-CoV-2. The incubation period's shorter, you're sick shorter, you shed virus for a shorter period, the recovery is shorter, everything is much more compressed. So you're talking about a period of weeks. I can't think, you know, in, in most cities, Schools would be closed, you know, for six weeks, eight weeks. I can't think of an instance where they were closed longer than 10 weeks. The first wave was very hit or miss. We had a, you know, you had a new virus that was not very good at infecting people. You know, the probably the best study of the pandemic done by contemporary scientists spoke of the first wave and said, you know, it lacked the penetrating power of the second wave. They also said it had a tendency to peter out. Probably half the country, similarly around the world, didn't see any first wave at all. We then had a variant that was much, much better at transmitting between people. And it also, the first wave was extraordinarily mild, much milder than ordinary influenza. A statistic I cite to illustrate that, the British Grand Fleet had 10,313 sailors sick enough to report to sick bay in the middle of a war four deaths, four out of 10,000. So even where the first wave did hit, which was a long way from everywhere, it wasn't really noticed or paid much attention to. The second wave was entirely different. Uh, There's no law of nature that says because a virus becomes more transmissible that it has to become more mild. And the second wave in 1918 is a perfect example of that.
2: I wanted to take a quick break, uh, but after we're back, we're going to talk about the subsequent waves and how the great flu ended and how people coped with the end of restrictive measures and returned to something approaching normalcy, as, as Warren Harding would have said at the time. So stay tuned.
0: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge...
2: Okay, we're back with John Barry, who's a distinguished scholar at Tulane and an expert on the 1918 flu. So we were talking before the break about waves of the flu. So there was a, a mild wave in early 1918. There was this much greater wave in late 1918. Walk me through what happened with that. What, what were the consequences of the flu becoming much more
3: lethal? The second wave was entirely different. It got everywhere in the world and it was very lethal, 14 or 15 weeks of hell, of real hell. There was a tremendous amount of fear. I think part of that fear was a direct result of the messaging from the government. It's not too good this time around, but <laughs> a lot better than it was in 1918. Because we were at war, there was this idea that any negative news would hurt morale and hurt the war effort, so the uh, the government was saying things like, this is ordinary influenza by another name. They were saying things like, you have nothing to worry about if proper precautions are taken. The press echoed that, given the patriotic fervor of the war. Plus, it was actually a law that threatened 20 years in prison. if He said anything that criticized the government. And early in the pandemic, one Wisconsin newspaper started to print the truth, and the Army actually began prosecution against that. Although as the pandemic proceeded, they dropped it. But you you were seeing, for example, in Little Rock, you know, outside Little Rock, there's an Army base where thousands of troops are in the hospital. A doctor is writing, we see nothing but death and destruction. Whereas the Little Rock newspaper, practically on the same day, as headlines saying the same old fever and just same old chills and the grip or something, you know, just totally dismissive. But nobody believed it. You know, they were being lied to. But the medium is the message, and the medium was everyday life. You see, you know, you, your spouse, your neighbor, your kid desperately ill, in many cases dying. You know perfectly well this is not ordinary influenza by another name. Today we sort of have two different belief systems. We have those who believe the scientists and we have people just as fervent, I think are basically idiots, who believe something entirely different, including I've got an email saying that I was evil and that I was a sellout to the global elite, that Bill Gates and the global elite are trying to depopulate the world with the vaccine. I mean, come on. At least I could have said I was a member of the global elite as opposed to sell out to the global elite. Really quite insulting. Uh, but anyway, cruel demotion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we, now we have two different belief systems. In 1918, all you knew was you were being lied to and you had nothing to believe in. And that is an even more frightening situation because you have nothing to cling to at all. You're pretty much at sea. You know, I think essentially society is based on trust. And when trust disintegrates, society isn't going to be that far behind. And that actually began to happen in the worst hit places in 1918. You actually see reports, not only in big cities, but in rural communities where you think that family and neighbors and so forth are everything, of people starving to death because there was too much fear. Nobody would actually bring them food. Uh, You had a very sober, serious scientist who, before the war, was dean of the University of Michigan Medical School and during the war was head of the Army's Division of Communicable Diseases, who said, if this continues, this rate of acceleration continues for a few more weeks, civilization could easily disappear from the face of the earth. Now, thankfully, we're not facing anything like that now. know we're having plenty of problems but we're not having that problem definitely the one area in which we are actually being harder hit than in 1918 is economically you know you know i I spoke a moment ago about speed and duration and so forth the first wave wasn't noticed the second wave was brief there was a third wave uh, which began in march 1919 and it was dangerous, but it wasn't in, in by any standard, except the second wave was very deadly, much worse than COVID today. But it was still less deadly than than the second wave. And it was not as widespread as the second wave. And again, it it occurred in a compressed period.
2: Were, were there any countries that sort of through policy had dramatically different experiences from from the rest of the world? Were there kind of places that you could hold up as an exemplar and say like in retrospect we all should have handled the flu this way the way that I don't know, belgium
3: did uh, just to name a random country not that i know of no again they they were hit by surprise the whole thing is happening so quickly a total of weeks and you don't have a lot of time to respond to it most places did use various measures not everywhere but fear. Was extant as well. So fear was emptying the streets. You know, even if no authorities had ordered places closed, you would still see fear keeping people out of the streets. Uh, like the very early days of COVID, when you looked at these shots of you know major cities with nobody moving, very eerie. You had situations like that in 1918. In, in the United States, the the closest would probably be St. Louis. Because if you model NPIs and what impact they may have on spread of the disease, St. Louis fits almost exactly to model. A guy, uh, Marty Cetrone at the CDC used to carry around a slide that compared the model with what actually happened in St. Louis. And whether it was a coincidence or not, uh, they they seem to fit perfectly.
2: Well done, St. Louis.
3: Philadelphia uh, would be an example of a city that did the worst, among the worst at any rate. But there were also cities that didn't do anything, nothing, and had sort of an okay response. That would be New York City. Didn't do anything. I'd said earlier, Tammany Hall had just retaken the city. They had probably the best, certainly the best public health agency in the country and maybe in the world but when Tammany took over they put a doctor in charge but he wouldn't do what Tammany wanted and they got rid of him and they they put a homeopath in charge who was a loyal Tammany hall political type and they didn't close any saloons they didn't close any theaters but new york actually had a relatively mild experience on a per capita basis they still had 33000 deaths so it wasn't as clear cut as, as you might think, but it, it it does seem definitive that NPIs did help. And again, this time around, we know for a certainty they've been extraordinarily effective when they've been uh, employed rigorously.
2: And so we hear a lot about about long COVID and sort of potential years, decades in the future, chronic illnesses uh, linked to to being infected. Was there sort of a long great flu? Uh, Do do we know anything about sort
3: of long term prospects for people who were infected and and survived? Yes, we we know a lot about that, and it was exactly the same phenomenon. I mean, one of the other similarities between 1918 and today, that virus affected every organ, quite literally, from the testes to the brain. You could see changes in autopsy, and you know they report virtually every kidney, virtually every liver. You know that's Almost certainly because the immune system was doing the damage and overreacting and trying to protect the body, you know, both in 1918 and today. You also had the equivalent of what we're calling long COVID. Quite clearly, that's that was the case. Uh, in the book, I quote Robert Frost months after he got sick, writing a letter saying, I barely have the energy to write this letter because he was so wiped out from influenza months after he supposedly had recovered. And I have some, quote, some data in there from from Cincinnati where they, but roughly they examined 7,000 people in 1919 after the pandemic and found like 5,200 of them still needed medical attention. And I think it was close to 15%, actually, even without modern scans and and blood markers, they found 15% with cardiovascular problems, with heart problems. It was also... A disease that surfaced a few years later became fairly widespread. And it was called encephalitis lethargica. So you get an idea of what the symptoms were. And that was not definitively linked, but strongly suspected to be linked to influenza. The people in in the book, The Awakening, and later a movie, They are, uh, you know, Oliver Oliver Sacks work, you know, those patients uh, suspected to have been victims of the influenza pandemic in 1918. There were very definitive neurological complications, very, very well documented in 1918, maybe even more than today.
2: What is the relationship between sort of the virus as it mutated in 1918, 1919, and what we call seasonal flus today, that sometimes you hear people talk loosely about how it was a pandemic and now it's just something we get every year? That feels a little too glib to me, but how would you characterize the relationship between that virus and the one we we deal
3: with in, in winters now? No, I actually, I think that's fairly accurate. Mm. You know, uh, the variants emerged. You know, the virus continually mutates, influenza actually mutates faster than COVID. Hmm. So I said it lost the ability to at least routinely infect cells in the lower respiratory tract. And therefore, it became considerably milder. And it was the influenza that was dealt with for a period of decades. In 1957, you had another new virus enter the human population, not nearly as dangerous as the 1918 virus and that replaced the 1918 virus as and became seasonal influenza. Then in 1968, there was another pandemic virus, again, mild compared to either what we're doing today, we're dealing with today, not to mention 1918. And that circulated until 2009, it's referred to as H3N2. Now we have two viruses, Actually, you have an influenza B as well, but I don't think you want to get that technical. Uh, so you have H1N1 from 2009, and you have H3N2 from 1968 that are co-circulating and both cause uh, seasonal influenza today. You know, our our hope, of course, is that COVID will continue to mutate in a direction of mildness, and the combination of immunity from, you know, we're probably we may well be, we're certainly on the cusp of practically everyone in the country, either being vaccinated or infected. And both of them are going to give you uh, at least some immune protection. So, you know, hopefully this virus will, will end up being much like seasonal flu. It'll probably continue to kill some people, but at a relatively acceptable level.
2: We're going to take one last quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk a bit more about the parallels between the 1918 flu and COVID and what lessons we can learn for the end of COVID or what will hopefully be the end of COVID. Stay with us. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. So we've talked about this in, in a variety of ways throughout this conversation, but I, I think just sort of a big dumb question a lot of people have now is when is this over? When do we we stop closing schools? When can you go on an airplane without a mask? Uh, when can I go to parties inside? And obviously there's, there's some people who've decided the answer is right now and are doing all those things. But I'm curious as someone who studied 1918 in depth and and the importance of non-pharmaceutical interventions then in depth, sort of how has that shaped your thinking about how to act in COVID? Has it made you sort of more risk-averse, more
3: risk-tolerant? Well, you know, you've got to make those decisions yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, I won't eat right now. I won't in, eat inside a restaurant. Fortunately, I'm in New Orleans, so it's not that cold. <laughs> you know, I, I actually do go to the gym. my uh, Mike home. I'm, I'm sure you have Seen on TV and comment. He's a good friend of mine. He tells me I'm crazy to do that. But I actually, you know, wear an N95 mask when I'm there and I'm not there very long. I only do a single exercise right next to the window that I can't do at home. You know, so, you know, that's a risk that I take personally. It might not be the wisest thing to do, although I try to compensate. But first, in terms of it becoming endemic, it is endemic. I think from The day this virus surfaced, anybody who knew anything about virology and immunity and so forth recognized that this virus was never, ever going to go away. Uh, Number one, it was too transmissible. Number two, it has animal reservoirs. Like the 1918 virus, which infected pretty much every known mammal, they even demonstrated that seals were infected by the 1918 virus. I don't know if whales were, but seals actually were infected, not to mention moose, tigers, cats, dogs, and so forth. We know that this virus can infect other mammals and has done a pretty good job of it. The National Zoo, I know there are uh, some big cats who are quite sick. So this virus is always going to be around forever. If it were to continue to be a serious lethal threat, then Probably people would continue i don 't know about closures, certainly we 're pretty much over that in the United States uh, elsewhere in the western world there, is, there are some places that are more aggressive on that, but I, I actually think people can can deal with everything. I think the most likely they get, they get used to anything, uh, not that they can deal with anything. Uh, I think the most likely scenario is that the virus will continue to mutate and combination of being more adept at infecting the upper respiratory tract and less adept at infecting the lung combination of that in the virus and and immunity in the population the threat will diminish significantly and we will go back to a normal pre-pandemic life now i think it's interesting that there was a pandemic in 1889, not nearly as lethal as 1918, but probably worse in 1957 or 1968. It was called the Russian flu, but there is a theory out there that it was actually caused by a coronavirus that today causes the common cold. Hmm. You know, I'm sort of agnostic on that theory. I think it's plausible, but the evidence isn't compelling. But the hope is that, you know, it'd be great if, if that's what happened in 1889, and it would be even better if that's what happens in the next few months and future years.
2: It it sounds like you're, you're pessimistic about this, but I just wanted to ask explicitly, do you think there's anything we could have done just as a society in 1918, 1919 that would have prevented relatively high occurrence flus from being an annual occurrence thereafter. Was that sort
3: of baked in as soon as you had these animal reservoirs? The the virus was the boss and is the boss. China is making an effort to contain it. I do not believe that they will be successful. As we speak, they have three cities, probably a total of roughly 20 million people under lockdown. They can't keep doing that. Well, I guess they could. You know, it's a totalitarian state. But even, even citizens in those have their limits. Yeah. You know, it really will interfere with the, the Chinese society over a period of time. Plus, of course, they got the Olympics in a few weeks. And on top of that, they have a very poor vaccine that provides essentially no protection against Omicron. So if, if China continues to try with the zero COVID stuff, there are going to be extraordinary interruptions. It's, I, I don't see how it's sustainable there. But again, a totalitarian state can get away with all sorts of things that can't happen to free society. But they're the only ones in the world that are even trying it anymore.
2: We've mentioned a few, but, but if you had to pick one lesson from the great flu for, for our handling of COVID going forward, what would it be?
3: Well, it's easy. That's tell the truth. You know, there's no doubt that The United States, hundreds of thousands of people have died who should be alive because of the politicization. In an earlier segment, I said, we sort of, you know, in 1918, nobody believed anything. They didn't know what to believe. Here, we have two different sets of beliefs the majority that believes in science and vaccines, and a minority, but a pretty significantly sized minority that won't take the vaccine. That's largely, not entirely, but mostly because of politicization. And it is a direct result. There are hundreds of thousands of people who are dead, who should be alive.
2: And so uh, we'll, we'll link to your book in, in the show notes. Are there any other resources, books, documentaries, anything that, that people who are interested in, in The Great Flu should, should read?
3: I'm sure there are, but <laughs> I can tell you one thing. If you really want an understanding Uh, Probably, uh, Unfortunately, this book is out of print, but you get it from your library. It's a brilliant book called The Natural History of Infectious Disease by McFarland Burnett, who was, I quoted him earlier, he's a Nobel laureate. You you don't need a scientific background to understand it, but it will give you, uh, you know, a great depth of understanding what we're facing or any infectious disease. It's really a great book.
2: Thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure.
3: Same here. Thank you.
2: That is all for us today. Thanks so much again to John Barry. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.
0: We hope you enjoyed how the 1918 flu pandemic ended from our friends over at the Weeds.
1: You can subscribe and listen to the show for free in your favorite podcast app. New episodes come out every Tuesday. We'll be back next week with the first installment in a new three part series about free speech, censorship, and so called cancel culture. Our first episode will focus on government restrictions on the free speech of individual American citizens. From the Alien and Sedition Acts, to the Palmer raids, to the burning of the American flag. Thank you for tuning in and stay safe in these complicated times. We'll be back next Tuesday.